Well, I want to start by asking you a question. The question is this. Can you remember a time where you were caught doing something that you knew you weren't supposed to be doing? Now, I know that's not the most exciting way to start, but don't worry. I'm not going to make you answer that out loud. Uh, But just I want you to think about that for a second. And I would imagine that pretty much all of us could think of that time. Think of a time where we were doing something we were not supposed to be doing and we got caught We're sitting in church, at least some of us. Welcome to those who are watching online. Uh, We're excited to be here again with a small group in person as we continue to work towards regathering in the not-too-distant future. But uh, I'm here in church, and so I can remember a time when I was a kid and I uh, I had that experience right here in church. So I don't know exactly how old I was, but when I was a kid, uh, probably just a little bit too old to go to the kids' program during church but also not really old enough to be super mature and dialed into what was happening during an adult church service. Uh, Me and my friends, our goal was always to sit together way in the back on the balcony. And the reason for that was very obvious. And we probably thought at the time that our parents didn't really get it, but obviously they knew. But the, the rationale was if we can sit way at the back up on the balcony away from our parents, we can get away with a lot more than if we're sitting right next to them. So we can joke around and we can kind of talk. We can be a little bit louder than we're supposed to be. We can play silly little games as long as we try and keep it sort of under pew level um, where people can't see. And we can actually have some fun during the service because... We're not really dialed in. We're not really paying attention. We just weren't at that maturity level or whatever. Now, the problem with that, because one day that happened, and from time to time, we were allowed to go and sit together, you know, a bunch of us uh, in the back on the balcony or wherever. And the problem with that is some kids could really get away with that, and nothing would happen, and they would just goof around the whole service, and uh, so good for them. My problem was my dad was the pastor, so he was facing us. So I remember one day we're up there and we're joking around and not paying attention and again, probably be too loud for what we're supposed to be and playing silly little games and probably flicking pieces of paper, whatever kids do. And then I remember just looking up and as soon as I looked up and forward, catching my dad's eyes and we kind of locked in and he's preaching and he didn't stop preaching. He kept doing his thing. But right in that moment, I knew I was caught. Because I knew I was doing what I shouldn't be doing, and I knew there was really no defense, and I was going to get in trouble for that. So now think of your example, and you know, probably all of us, we can go back to our childhood. I'm sure there was a time in your childhood where you were doing something with your friends or your siblings, and all of a sudden your parents walked in and you knew it was something that you weren't supposed to be doing, and you were caught. Or maybe it was when you're a teenager and you came home late at night, and you thought everybody would be asleep, but your parents were waiting up for you. Or maybe it's been more recently or even more seriously is when your, your spouse uh, saw your credit card bill or your browser history or CRA decided to audit you or your coworker came and said, hey, so-and-so told me what you've been saying about me. And you have that moment where all of a sudden you realize you're caught doing something you know you're not supposed to do. You know you're in trouble. Now, do you know what the feeling is when that happens? Actually, there's probably a few different ones, and we might all have different experiences. But do you know what your feeling is in that moment? For some of us, it might be grief. Oh, I'm so so sad that I would do this and hurt somebody else. Or it might be guilt or even more shame. Guilt is kind of when we take 
Uh, or shame is when we take guilt and we attach it to our identity and we say, uh, I didn't just do something bad, but I am something bad. And some of us in those moments, that's what we feel is guilt or even shame. Some of us, we might get very anxious because, oh, now I'm in trouble. What's coming? That was kind of me that morning because I knew I wasn't going to get in trouble right in that moment. But by the time we got home for lunch, I was gonna, that was going to be an unpleasant afternoon. Uh, so there might be sort of an anxiety of, of what the punishment or consequence is going to be. What's going to come down the line? Some of us might react with anxiety anger or frustration, this defense mechanism of I'm going to lash out at other people because I'm, I'm feeling uh, defensive. But whatever that emotion is, that emotion is there because it tells us we have to do something about this. We have to fix this in some way. I've done something wrong. I've been caught. And now in some shape or form, I have to fix it. Now, of course, there's healthy ways to go about that. And there's not so healthy ways to go about that. So in our ego which is that part of us that is sort of self-interested and standing up for ourselves, our ego will often say, well, there's a number of options that I can go through to try and fix this problem. And again, they're not always good ones. Some of us is straight denial. I didn't do it. Maybe I can talk my way out of it. Maybe I can convince people or this person or whoever that I didn't do this. Uh, and, And you're mistaken. And so it never really happened. I can deny it. Maybe they can't prove it. For some of us, maybe it's, it's blame. Well, oh yeah, I did it, but you don't know what they did to me first. Or uh, my, I was put in this position and that person did these things and so I really had no other options and, and you should have heard what they said to me before I said something about them. And we kind of blame people around. Uh, we excuse our behavior sometimes. Yes, I did this, but I have an excuse. And you probably would have done the same thing if you were in my position. And you don't know how it felt. And so I have an excuse. And by the way, an excuse is different from an explanation. An explanation can be very helpful. Let's explain, especially if you're truthful, why you did something that was hurtful or harmful or destructive in some ways. But an excuse is trying to say, I don't really bear responsibility because of my circumstances or what somebody else did or something else. Some of us, we like to bargain. Well, I'm going to figure my way out of this. I'm going to make it up to you. Oh, I can make this up to you. I know I did this and I hurt you, but, but I, I'm going to do this for you. I got you a gift. Or, or, or tomorrow, I'm going to do this for you and it's going to be repaired. And our ego just so desperately wants to take whatever that emotion is of being caught that we might feel in that moment and say, I've got to do something about this. And it's, it's a terrible feeling, whatever it is for you, to be caught doing something you know you're not supposed to do, to be, to be caught in, in a spot where you're just, you know that you're, you're wrong. So we're talking about grace in this series. And We've called it the pace of grace because we're talking about what it's like for us uh, to try and align with the way that, that God has truly ordered things to live in grace, in the flow of grace, in everything that we do and everything that we are. It's all about grace, God uh, lavishing this grace upon us. And uh, grace, I think, is the great antidote, the great antidote to all the things that we do wrong. It is such a beautiful gift but it's also extremely threatening, extremely threatening to our ego. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. I want to be forgiven. I want this to be dealt with. I want this to go away. I want somebody to to maybe understand from my perspective and let me off the hook. But it's also something that we're very hesitant to extend to other people. So think now, if you've already thought of the emotional process of what it's like to be caught in something, but think now 
of if you caught somebody else. So maybe you can think of something that happened when you were a kid and the way that your parents addressed that issue. And maybe now you're a parent. And what happens when you catch your children in the act of doing something that you've told them they're not supposed to do? What if you turn the tables, whether it's in a relationship or, or, or uh, something at work happens, and, and now you're on the other side, and where on the one side you're just hoping, uh, we've got to fix this, and uh, man, grace, I would love grace. But what happens when you're the one offended, when you're the one hurt, when you're the one that is in the right and somebody else is in the wrong? How do you respond then? And this is the great tension. The great tension goes uh, between, of grace that goes between, I want grace for me, but I'm hesitant to give it to other people. Or I want this situation to be fixed in grace, but my ego is telling me I need to go about it a different way. See, see our ego uh, wants to say, I can fix this. And so grace, although it's a beautiful gift to us, we have to be willing to receive it. Otherwise, we fight it. And so that's a little bit threatening to us. And also offering that to somebody else seems almost unjust. In fact, it is practically speaking, unjust, to just forgive somebody of something when they've hurt you. And so on the one hand, there's these great moments where you feel like, what a gift, I just want grace. And these other moments where you go, but grace is so offensive. So offensive to our sense of justice. So uh, offensive to our sense of what I deserve and what somebody else deserves. And so there's this push and a pull to what grace is like. So today I want to work through a little bit of the logic of how grace is the great antidote to the things that we do that we shouldn't do. And my hope is that uh, you'll simply grow just a little bit in your appreciation for grace and maybe your openness to receiving it and to giving it. Because that's how grace works. There's no earning it. There's no meriting it. There's only receiving it and giving it. It's the nature of grace. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in the first... um, 10 verses or so of Ephesians chapter 2. We've been working through uh, this letter over the last few weeks and we'll continue uh, today. It says this in chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following by the passionate desires and inclination of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Uh, This passage starts with a sobering view of humanity. It's not the most uplifting of a couple of verses. It might seem a little bit pessimistic even, but actually I think uh, it's very realistic. It is the writer's way of saying, I want us all to get onto the same page here. And there's a few things that he says that all of us have experienced. Number one, he says, you were dead in sin. We know this doesn't mean physically or biologically dead. In the next verse, he talks about this is how you were living. Uh, And of course, it wouldn't really make sense to talk to people who are dead anyways. And so what he's talking about here is not physical or biological, but a spiritual death. It means you're not living a flourishing life. There's part of you that just is turned off, is not there, is not happening. The vital connection that God wants to have that enlivens your spirit was not there. You were dead, and you were dead because of your disobedience, because of your many sins. It's a spiritual death. When we talk about the disobedience and the sins, these are 
these are our missteps. These are our failures. These are our destructive behaviors that are destructive either for ourselves, for relationships with other people, and certainly in our relationship with God. It is not arbitrary that God has a bunch of rules and says, uh, follow all my rules, and then, oh, you disobeyed them, you're bad people. I don't think God operates that way. I think if there is a God of the universe, which I believe there is, and if that God is love, which I believe he is, then God's law is love, which means the, the way to flourish, the way to be alive spiritually is to live in love. But it also means that when you're not living in love, you're disconnected from the harpy. You're disconnected from the creator, the, the, the life giver. And that's what we call sin. That's the disobedience. It's not to arbitrary rules. It's to saying if there's a way to truly experience life, you were in a spot where you were not living that way. Second thing, he says, you were in bondage to the devil. That just like the rest of the world, you're obeying the devil. That the, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, or in some translation, the prince of the powers of the air, that there is this, this evil figure that is influencing you, whether you know it or not, and you're enslaved to that kind of influence. And so rather than obeying the creator, the God of love, you are obeying the devil that has this power in the world, but he's enslaving you. You're living according to the power that leads to rebellion rather than to a life of resurrection, which we'll get to in a second. And so you're rebelling, you're disobeying, you're going against the law of love, the, the creator. And that leads to a, a certain bondage that's not a, a, a life-giving, flourishing experience. And then number three, you are deserving judgment. At the end of verse 3, it there says, uh, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, uh, that we deserved his judgment. And again, not because God said, here's some arbitrary rules, and I'm going to get mad if you don't follow them, but because the God of love loves us and wants what's best for us. And a God who loves us and wants what's best for us is going to be upset by that which is destructive to us and to our relationship. How could he not be? Because he loves us because he, he wants to be in a relationship with us, because he wants us to flourish, because he wants us to live, because he doesn't want us to be in bondage. And so we come to the end of this short passage, and the writer here is saying, and, and I mean, this is where we've all got to. Not really living, in bondage, and we actually deserve God's wrath. Well, how does that happen? I mean, how do those sins happen? I think in two broad ways. A whole bunch of specifics we could get into, probably thousands of things. But broadly speaking, how is it that we enter into that kind of life in rebellion? Well, I think Jesus told a powerful parable that, that gives us two categories that we need to be really careful of. A lot of us call that parable um, the parable of the prodigal son. So it starts with the one son, goes to his father. He tells his father, basically, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. He goes off, his father agrees, surprisingly, he goes off and he squanders everything he has with rebellious wild living, right? You almost think like this guy's a, a wild teenager who just needs to, to get it all out, all the rebellion, all that, whatever. But he ends up with nothing and he realizes he's hit rock bottom and he's done terrible things and he's got nothing left and he's poor and he's just hoping that he can come back and, and he could get a job on his father's farm. And so he rehearses his little speech and he's coming home. But before he can get there and before he can say his speech, his father runs out to him and he's so happy that he's there and he hugs him and he gives him his robe and he brings him in for a huge party, throws a party, kills the fatted calf. Oh, what a celebration. His son who was lost has now been found. Well, it's one way that we sin. We rebel. 
And we go off and we just disobey and we do things uh, maybe that short term seem really good, but long term are destructive. And we, we hurt our family, we hurt our friends, we hurt people around us. But what we often miss in that parable, if you read it, is that after that, you find that the father goes out and he's got another son, the older son, and the older son is still in the field and he's working. And instead of coming into the party, he's out in the field pouting. And his father comes out wondering why he's not in the party. And he says, I'm basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm so mad because I've been here working and doing everything you've asked of me. And you've never thrown me a party. You've never killed the fattened calf for me. And the father looks at him and he says, you've missed the whole point. Don't you understand? Everything I have is yours. This is all about family. We're, this isn't, you're not a worker, just like my other son's not a worker. I didn't accept him back as a worker, but you're not a worker. You're my sons and we're family. That's not how, you don't earn your way into this family. Come into the party. And the parable ends and we don't know if the older son goes into the party or not. We're left on a cliffhanger. And it illuminates in, us in the second way that we sin, the second way uh, that, that we, uh, we disobey against God. First is rebellion. Second is religion. Religion that says, I can earn this love. I can earn this acceptance. Look at all that I've been doing. It's a meritocracy. And you might say, oh, that's kind of silly in a family. But I'll tell you this, we've been doing it. Ever since that story was told, we've been doing it for hundreds, for thousands of years in humanity. We build, we build up meritocracies. You earn what you get. We separate winners and losers. We do it in all kinds of different ways. We, we, we become very tribal people. Even in Christianity, we do this. At the heart of, of the message of Jesus is this, this gracious love. And yet, uh, we, we just have this human way of saying, but we need to kind of build in certain boundaries that help us to know who are the winners and who are the losers so that I can be assured that I'm a winner and that I'm in. And so normally in religious circles, we kind of come up with boundaries. Here's the behaviors that are acceptable or unacceptable. And if you can stay in the boundaries, then you can be part of our community. And then the other people, they're outside of our community until they can work their way into it. And it's funny because in Christian denominations, if you go to different kind of Christian churches, our lists are even all different. You know, if you grew up in church somewhere, you probably had a list of things that this is what's acceptable or not acceptable for Christians to do. This is our behaviors. And it might not have been explicitly said to you, and if you do these things, you don't belong, or if you don't do these things, you don't belong. But there was sort of this undercurrent of, yeah, but people who are really Christians behave this way. But it's not always the same. Church to church, it's different. It's the things that maybe we've become comfortable with or that we've emphasized Sometimes there's also really long lists of beliefs. We have to agree on every social issue. We have to agree on every political issue. We have to agree on all kinds of different things. And that makes us feel like we're the, we're the winners. But it's a meritocracy. It's not grace. It's here's what you have to do to really fit in. Here's all the things that you need to agree with us on to really fit in. It's tribalism. It's we've created our little list of boundaries. And when we're reading Ephesians and throughout a bunch of the New Testament, we realize this is what's happening because uh, here and elsewhere, this isn't super individualistic. Many of us were very individualistic. We think of this very individualistically. And so even when we read those first few verses and it says, um, this is the way you were living, just like everybody else, uh, or just like everybody else in the world, just like the rest of the world, we sort of think like you and you and you and me, we're all kind of bad, the same amount of bad or whatever. We're all on equal footing. But for these writers, the big, the, the real big conversations and discussions weren't really between individuals. They didn't think as individualistically, but the conversation was more about their tribes or their ethnicity or their nationality. So 
many of the first Christians because Jesus was Jewish, and that's his tradition, were Jewish. And then pretty quickly, the church evolves, and there's a whole bunch of people that aren't Jewish joining with people who are Jewish. And then there's these arguments about what that means and, and what's the difference between us and how much do we have to be alike? And there's this arguments of tribalism. And you can read entire books like Galatians that talk all about that um, and talk about the fact, no, 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 we come together in grace. And that's what the writer here is doing in these first few verses. When he talks about, um, by our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. He's not saying, uh, me, Dave, and you, so-and-so, and you, so-and-so. He's saying, us, the Jews, and you, the Gentiles, we're all on the same ground here. Because some people... And again, we all do this. We all, this is such a temptation for human beings to do. We go, but look at my ancestry or my ethnicity or my nationality or my religious background or whatever. And we build the in and out and we build the winners and the losers based on all of these, these, these different little mechanisms we have. In a lot of ways, I think that's why, and this was clear in Jesus' ministry, that grace was easier for the rebels to receive than the religious to receive. Because the rebels, at some point anyway, had an opportunity to hit rock bottom and say, I don't have much to go on here. I'll receive the gift. Whereas for those of us who are very religious, it can be very hard. We build up this ego. We build up all of these mechanisms that, that sort of say, you're accepted, you're not so bad, you're pretty good. And so here in these verses, we have kind of that shut down. Let's just start, hey, Jews, Gentiles, people who have a long religious history, people who don't, people who are from the pagan world, people who are from this place and that place. Let's just all get together. This was, this was all of us. All of us. All the tribes. Whatever your tribe is and however you've constructed that. Now, if you're the kind of person that says, yeah, but I don't know, like me individually, I don't know if this is me. Like, do I really, have I done anything really all that bad? Then I would say, again, let's first look at this on kind of a global perspective. First of all, let's just look at the world and acknowledge there's a lot of hurt and pain out there that we cause each other as human beings, collectively. And that that hurt and that pain happens on individual level, interpersonal level, national, international level, right? There's, there's wars, there's civil wars, there's problems in marriages, there's problems with coworkers, there's problems with uh, parents and children, there's problems with friends, there's problems with, like, just acknowledge, it's hard, it's hard for anybody, I think, to say that that's not true. And then just ask yourself, is it really possible that you're not part of that? And just stop with the ego a little bit and just go, maybe we're all as individuals and as groups part of this. And then you go, well, that is a bit of a depressing start. Again, I would say maybe realistic. And then we have one of the most powerful, beautiful phrases in all of the scripture, starting in verse 4. But God... We start with where we were. Left to our own devices, we make a lot of mess as human beings. Verse 4, but God. Left to our devices as human beings, we have worked our way to the point where we deserve judgment. As bad as that feels, as awful as that experience is, there's reason for us to be judged, for someone to be angry with us. Verse 4, but God. Now we move into the next phase we've gone from. Here's where we all started, but God. And then we come to a masterful, beautiful description of where God is coming from. The God who has justification to be angry with a world that has made so many messes and continues to do so. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is so beautiful after reading those first few verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when he could have been justified just to, just to have a temper tantrum on us. But God, rich in mercy. So a little while ago, my wife and I were with friends. We were, uh, we were talking to them and we were sort of reflecting because people we hadn't seen, uh, you know, in person in such a long time, we finally had an opportunity to do that safely. And we were sort of uh, recounting some of the stuff in the pandemic and all that. And uh, they were making jokes because do you remember this? This didn't last too long, but there was a season beginning of pandemic when there were certain items you couldn't buy. They were really scarce. So it was stuff like uh, flour for baking because everybody, I guess, was baking bread. So you couldn't find flour in the store. It was like the hottest commodity. And paper towel and toilet paper. And of course, hand sanitizer right at the beginning, right? These were all things flying off the shelf and Stores couldn't keep it in stock uh, for, for long enough. And uh, so a lot of people were hoarding it, right? If you found it, then you would stock up on it. So we were talking to this other couple and they were joking around and making fun of each other because they were kind of those hoarders for a couple of those things. So they were saying, even now, we're like a year and a bit from that time when you couldn't buy stuff. If you come to our basement, I have so much flour. I've got walls of flour stacked up. We will never again have to buy flour. We will never again run out of toilet paper. We have so much toilet paper. Because she said, every time I went to the store, if one of those items was there, I bought every item in the store that I could. And I just stocked up. And we were laughing about it because it seems a little silly now. But at the time, that was a real thing. And it was a horror thing. But the point was, she said, if you come into my basement, if you open this door, I have a storeroom full of flour, of toilet paper, of whatever. This is the picture we have here. We put ourselves in this mess. But God, if you knock on his door and he opens it, you will see overflowing mercy. That's what God does. Not a hesitant, oh, I'll go see if I have some, but the stores have run out. I don't know if I, could, if I could possibly spare some for you. It's flowing out of the door. Have as much as you need. It is for you because we could never spend this much. We could never run out of this. There's so much. He's just so, so rich in mercy. And so we start with this very realistic mess that we have all been part of created wherever we've come from, but God being rich in mercy. And then did you notice in those few verses that everything that was the problem in the first three verses has been rectified in the next four? So we were dead in our sins. Well, we've been made alive together with Christ. He's given us life and a vital connection, an ability to flourish spiritually in Christ. And if you go back a few weeks ago, we talked a lot about this in Christ. How does that work? Because of what Christ has done, he's inviting us corporately to be part of Christ. And so Christ, who was dead and resurrected physically, that's now the pattern for us spiritually. But you are now, you were dead, but now you've been made alive. Well, you were in bondage 
to the devil, to this evil influence. Well, now, verse 6, you've been raised up with him and seated. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if you remember last week, we said, what does that mean? That Jesus has been seated in the heavenly places. It means he's been vindicated. It means he's been freed. It means the way that he lived and operated and loved sacrificially has been vindicated as the way that God lives. Well, now you've been put on that plane to live the way that Jesus has lived. You're no longer in bondage to the dead way of living and the influence of living evil. You're now invited to live on a different plane. And then sandwiched in between those things where we had been uh, deserving of judgment, by grace, you have been saved. By the mercy of God, by grace, you have been saved. That all the problems that we were introduced to in the first few verses have now been given a solution, but only by grace, through faith. In the next verse, 80 repeats it again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So here's the deal. This is offensive to our ego. You can't justify yourself. You can't blame your way out of this. You can't excuse your way out of this. You have to receive grace. You have to realize that's, that's the only way. That's the only solution. See, condemnation is just a cycle that will never, ever work. And so this is spelled out for us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You can only receive it. You cannot earn it by its very definition. It's not a result of works. There's nothing you can do that will result in your salvation. So that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is not the result of good works, but it does result in good works. That's what he's saying. It's transformative. Condemnation, the judgment, can't do that. You might be able to modify your behavior, at least for a short time. So mad at you, you did so wrong, I'm going to punish you, we're going to kick you out, unless you get your act together. You might be able to change your behavior, but that will not change your heart. It will just be a cycle. We judge each other. We build our boundaries. We become tribal. We have winners and losers. It's a meritocracy. And in the end, we will all lose because we can never all win. But God, rich in mercy, and he lavishes this grace upon us. Do you know what the crazy thing is? Grace makes it safe to be guilty. And grace makes it possible, possible to be good. See, a lot of us, again, the ego thing tells us, I can't admit that I'm guilty. Because i got to fix this. That's why we go through all the other stuff. The, the blaming or, or the excusing or the playing down of what we did or however we do that. It's our ego trying to protect our self-interest and, and my ability to be a good person or to fit in to be a winner. Grace says it's safe to be guilty. You don't have to lose everything. You don't have to be excommunicated. You can still be loved. You can still be accepted. You can still belong here. You can still be in relationship. We can work through this. doesn't mean that there's no consequences to our actions. We know that that's true. But it's not who you are. It's not your identity. Grace allows us to say, I can own my guilt because I can be forgiven of it. It's anti-ego. Our ego will always fight that. 
But grace makes it safe to be guilty and grace makes it possible to be good. Grace changes our hearts in a way that we could never change our hearts. We could never earn that kind of... See, the only way that this can flow into you and out of you is by totally adopting it, right? Because this isn't just going to be for me as an individual. It's going to be us for as a community. So how do we live together in grace? How am I ever going to flow out grace? How could I ever forgive someone? Because this is all well and good. You say, oh, grace is wonderful. That's good. It's all well and good until somebody really hurts you, betrays you, breaks the trust in your relationship. And that's when, again, your ego from the other side now says, ah, we can't just forgive, can we? The only way we're ever going to be able to give grace is to receive it. That's what transforms our hearts. In fact, Jesus talks about that all the time in forgiving. Those who are forgiven, forgive. There's no other way to do it. You adopt it for yourself and others, or you can't adopt it at all. That is how grace works. But it deals with our our motives and our heart change, not just behavior modification. Changes Changes our complete, our operating system from meritocracy to grace. We receive it and we can give it. So condemnation empowers our sin and takes away our future, but grace takes away our sin and empowers our future. Condemnation empowers our sin. It's the first three verses. You're stuck in your guilt. You're stuck in temptation. You're not really alive. There's no way out and your ego is just trying to find a way. Well, condemnation, when we just condemn each other, well, this is what you deserve, holds us there. It takes away a future. I'm stuck here. This is who I am. But grace does the opposite. Takes away our sin and empowers a future. Says, you don't have to be your sin. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to take care of it. We're going to forgive it. That's what Jesus does for us. That's his grace. That's the cross. It's the message of his self-sacrificing love. And then we move out of there and say, now you have a future. One day uh, in John chapter 8, we read that uh, there were these religious people uh, who come to Jesus and uh, they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. And this is how it goes. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So they came to the temple. This is like the most religious place that they could possibly be, right? Uh, everybody's coming, everybody's coming to the temple, they're all worshiping, it's high visibility, all this kind of stuff. And uh, Jesus sits down and teaches people. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, that's like a really jerk move to kind of take this whole high-profile area and stick somebody there. Uh, Where's the man who was not brought here? Uh, Because we would assume that she didn't commit adultery alone but no mention of him. But they're doing it to trip him up. It says, now in the law, um, this is what they're saying. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're testing him because um, no one wants to stone a woman in front of everybody at the temple. Like they're sort of begging him to call their bluff. Like, they're, they're not actually going to do that. They wouldn't actually do that. There's no records at this time that they would actually do something like that. And so if Jesus goes, yeah, stoner, they'll be like, what are you doing? That's crazy. But they bring up the law. And so if Jesus says, of course, we're not going to stoner. We would never do that. They would say, oh, so you don't care about the Bible. You don't care about the law. You're just going to. So they're trying to trick him, right? They're putting him in a situation. They think that he can't win. 
they said this to test him. Then it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, nobody knows what Jesus was writing on the ground. People have some guesses. I love Andy Stanley, who's a popular pastor in the state, says, uh, sort of tongue in cheeks, he thinks he was writing something like, it takes one to know one. Other people think, because some of the ways that they would, they would, when they brought people into court, because they would have a lot of dirt floors, uh, they would write the charges that were against someone in the sand. And so some scholars think that Jesus was writing in the sand things that he could accuse these other people of, that they were guilty of. And then all of a sudden they were realizing, oh no, I'm caught too. We're not sure. But as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, probably the wiser ones who uh, at first realized, okay, he's got us, he's outsmarted us. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We can own this. We don't have to pretend that it didn't happen. But I don't condemn you. And I'm freeing you up for a future. Condemnation empowers our sin and takes away our future. This is who you are. You're a bad person. This is your identity. This is your shame. This is what you carry. You'll never get rid of this. But grace takes away our sin and empowers our future. I forgive you. This isn't who you have to be. Come live a different way. And it's the invitation that we all have to us because grace allows us to own our guilt, but it also allows us to be good for the good works that he has created us for, that he prepared for us, that you can live a different way now. Grace isn't just what saves us from sin, it's what gives us life. And so we live in it. Uh, this passage that we finished in Ephesians, it says that we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship can be translated a number of ways. It's usually uh, some kind of artwork. You're God's artwork. Literally, the Greek word is poema, and it is where we get our word for poem. You and I, us. We are God's poetry. Our life is God's poetry. And the beautiful thing about poetry is oftentimes the contrast. There's some beauty and then there's hardship. There's, there's lines in poetry that are light and fluffy and then there's lines that are heavy and difficult. Something where we could all say, that sounds a little bit like my life. There's, there's some good and there's some hard. There's some, some, some difficult things and some beautiful victories. We are God's poem and good poetry is an expression that comes from deep inside the poet, from his, his being expressed in beauty and awe and wonder. And you are God's poetry. We are God's poetry. All the tough stuff and all the good stuff, all the beauty and all the difficult stuff mixed in together as we are being formed into the kind of people who can do the good works he's always created us to do. And right at the heart of God's poetry, I believe, is this powerful, powerful line, by grace we are saved through faith. 
So Heavenly Father, today would you give us the humility, maybe for the first time for some of us, maybe for the thousandth time, to open our hearts and to receive your grace. Our salvation, not an act that our ego could work, not something that we could possibly merit, but simply a gift that today we receive because of your rich mercy and love. May each person listening or watching to this message know how much you love them and how rich in mercy you truly are. And God, would you help us to be so open to that message of grace that it wouldn't just be grace to us, but it would be grace through us to a world who's longing for your love and your mercy. Would you continue to spread your kingdom throughout the world? In Jesus' name, amen.